Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. Um, Two weeks, see if John can uh, get this one. Big Church, brand new series that I'm starting that I'm super excited about, September 11th. And the whole idea is that 2,000 years ago, Jesus started a movement that was a big deal and a big idea. And in a lot of cases, it's been hijacked or perverted, and people have walked away from it, but it's still God's plan. And I cannot probably overestimate enough the relevance that I think it has to so many of us for the next five weeks, starting on 11. I'm going to go through the book of Acts, and I think it's going to be helpful and more relevant than you think. And it's a great time to be here and invite. And it's a great time to invite if you know somebody who's walked away from the church, resisted the church, has questions. This is a series for them, but I think it's a series for a lot of us. And so September 11th, that's happening. Invite be here for big church. It's also, for those of you who care, and you should, it's also um, NFL kickoff weekend. And so there's going to be a lot of things special we do that weekend. The reason is because I love football and I'm the boss. So I'm like, hey guys, this is what we're doing. Um, so it's going to be a great Sunday to be here, a great Sunday to invite across the boards kids and adults. So with that said, today we are in part four of the series um, that Jonathan can't remember, Better Decisions and Fewer Regrets. That's the title. And we're talking about the relationship between really great questions and really great decisions. And there's a link that oftentimes we overlook. But if you will ask great questions, answer them, and then act, it has the potential, we've said this throughout the series, to change and transform your life. And it has the potential to transform the lives of other people around us because we're not the only one impacted by our decisions. We're not even the only ones impacted by the regrets from our decisions. Like there's a ripple effect. So here's what we've said so far, and you can go back on any podcast catcher, watch on YouTube, whatever you want to do. But the three questions we looked at so far are, first of all, on the edge of this decision, am I being completely honest with me? Because we've said you've got a naive salesperson in your own mind that can convince you on anything that you want to do, and you go find reasons that aren't reasons. So the first step is to really be brutally honest about why am I actually doing this? even if that honesty makes you temporarily feel uncomfortable or bad about yourself. Because you're never going to get to where you want to be until you accurately assess where you actually are. So on the verge of this, you're in the middle of this, are you being honest with you, really? Like, why are you really making this decision? And then the second question, as complicated as the decision is, as emotional as it is, because there's so much emotion in decision-making, Eventually, that complicated emotional decision will be nothing but a couple sentences. So when this is nothing left but a story you tell, what story do you want to tell? And what we said throughout the series is so important because I think we feel like so much of this is out of our control. We get to decide a lot of that. Like even if you've got a really over-the-top story about how you've been hurt, and I would never diminish that or what somebody else has done to you, and all of the impact that it's had on your life, you still get to decide. Don't allow somebody else's bad behavior to entice you or to like seduce you into making a really bad decision. You get to decide the story you write, even your response to somebody else's bad decisions. So write a good story. Decide a good story. Eventually, it's just going to be a story you tell. And then the third question, 
When you're on the verge of a decision where everything looks good on paper, right? Like it all lines up, your friends are on board with it, you can convince anybody, you even found a verse. I mean, everything is tracking in the direction you want it to go, and you just know. There's just a hitch, there's a hesitation, there's a, I'm not sure about this. And when you feel that, you need to pay attention to the tension. On the verge of a decision, is there a tension that deserves your attention? Because that tension, this is not an overstatement, might be the voice of God might be keeping you from a regret that you don't want or from undermining your own future and your own happiness. That tension that where something bothers you, what bothers you, you need to allow to bother you. And here's what we said last week. The reason that we can ignore that tension or our conscience or whatever you want to call it and move forward is because we are seduced into thinking that we can predict the outcomes. So we move forward with the decision. We kind of press down the tension thinking, no, but this is going to be different for me. I'm unique. I know how this is going to work out. And here's the reality for all of us. And we have enough track record to tell us this. We cannot accurately predict the future. We cannot accurately predict outcomes. So if there's a tension that you feel on the verge of a decision, pay attention to that tension. Let what bothers you bother you. And then that brings us to our fourth question today. And here's what I'd say about these questions. I think they're clarifying. I think simultaneously that they they can be terrifying. Here's what I mean by that. They're clarifying that when you ask these questions in many cases, even in complex situations, it almost immediately like leads you to a place to go, okay, I know what to do. I know if I removed everything else, I know what I need to do. But then that kind of makes you accountable because you can't unknow what you know. And with this question, it's going to be the question that you're most tempted to bypass. Like, well, just give me the other three. Those are relevant. I don't want to do this. Because it's going to require the most from you. And once you know the answer, it's hard to unknow that. You feel accountable. So here's what I said throughout this series. Just let yourself off the hook. Even if you don't plan to do anything, you owe it to yourself to be honest, because what you won't know will hurt you. And this is true for all, what you won't acknowledge has the tendency to hurt the people who are closest to you. And so our fourth question that I want to dive into is all about how your decisions impact your relationship. This question is specifically designed around the relational impact of your decision, which is almost every decision you make. Even if you try to disconnect it, almost every decision you make has a relational component to it. It's impacting, it's affecting somebody around you. And here's what I know about you. As you look to your future, like you have a vision for your future, even if you've never like articulated it or written it down. And usually that vision involves somebody else because we're just created as beings that are relational. This question helps you keep that somebody there. This is the question as you look to your future and you think about the people who are around you, the relationships that you value most. If you're single, to quote a mentor of mine, this is the question that leads you in the direction if you don't plan to be single forever to make sure that you are becoming the person that you're looking for is looking for. Did you get that? So, but this is a question that has the potential, again, no overstatement, to change the trajectory of every relationship in your life. This is the question that has the ability to heal broken relationships, to restore relationships that you thought were were too far gone. It has the potential to restore and to initiate maybe intimacy where intimacy has been lost and, and begin to move you in a place that you did not think was possible for that relationship. But here, here's a little side note before I dive into it. The only thing that's different though about this question from the other questions in this series is this does not have an immediate ROI. And what I mean by that is immediate return on investment. 
Every other question, you, like when you're honest with yourself, there's almost an immediate positive payoff. When you step back to go, what story do I want to tell? That moves you forward. When you decide to pay attention to the tension or what bothers you, it almost always leads to some kind of tangible, like positive result in terms of your life or decision making. This question is not like that. This question is going to be the hardest question to answer, the one you're going to want to ignore, because at the heart of this question is not just what is going to be beneficial for you, which is where we tend to lean. This question at the heart is about what is going to be beneficial for other people around you. And I think that there is an, a, a tangible return on investment, but it's not just always immediate. In fact, if immediately it might even set you back in terms of like how you view what's good for you. So, if you know anything about Jesus' ministry, Jesus, when he touched down on planet Earth, he came to deliver this message and movement that was unlike the world had ever seen. In fact, people were constantly getting confused about what Jesus was introducing because it was so brand new, it was so different, and he kept trying to warn people. And we're 2,000 years after still trying to catch up. Hey, everything you've known about religion, Everything about you, you've known about God, I'm about to shatter all of it. I am introducing something that is brand new to the world. And as Jesus talked about this, everybody was confused because they thought he was going to come and bring political reform, which is what some of us are still looking for, um, because we've gotten it confused with the message and the movement of Jesus. And, and Jesus over and over again would go, no, no, I'm, I'm doing something bigger than Israel. I'm doing something bigger than Rome. I'm doing something that's going to be inclusive to the entire world. But they were constantly confused. And you maybe know the story when Jesus finally rolls into the streets of Jerusalem and there's crowds of maybe thousands of people cheering his name. It's a massive parade. Everybody in that moment temporarily loves Jesus, but it's fragile, it's fleeting. And everybody's confused about what Jesus' aim was. In fact, his disciples during this time are having conversations about who's gonna have power in Jesus' new kingdom. So there, Jesus is rolling into Jerusalem to introduce what he's going to introduce. And they're like, hey, Jesus, when you set up your kingdom, because we're pretty sure your whole goal is to overthrow Rome, return us to the golden age of Israel. And so can we have a seat in your cabinet? Like, I'll take secretary of labor or educate, like whatever you want to give me. But we want power. We want influence. We want to be right beside you when you come and set up your political kingdom and you bring Rome to its knees and you return Israel. We want a part of that. And Jesus is like, I'm not doing any of that. That's not why I'm here. In the final hours before he was going to be betrayed, Jesus uses that opportunity right before he was arrested to make his intentions really, really clear. <laughs> and his disciples were so confused, he sits at a table and he's like, hey, just, this has been cool for the last three years. But just so you guys know, I'm about to peace out. I'm going to leave. I know it's kind of scary. You guys are going to be fine. In fact, I'm going to leave you something that's going to be even better. You're going to be okay. And they were so out of their minds, confused slash terrified. Because one of the things that we forget is that Jesus was the buffer for their security. Everywhere Jesus went, there was massive crowds. The thing that protected Jesus and his disciples from the religious leaders killing Jesus sooner was the crowds. And so his disciples immediately are concerned about their own security. If you peace out... The crowds go with you, and we're left exposed to the religious leaders, which means they may take us out. They don't like us. And then, second thing, Jesus, why in the world would you leave now? Why in the world would you take off now? And Jesus uses this opportunity in these literal final moments to spell out on their final night together terms that are, I think, so familiar, so 
we're so inoculated to them that my fear is they have little to no impact. And it shows. Like words that when Jesus spoke them that we have like made into some kind of Sunday school lesson or an add-on or an addition to, not understanding that in these moments Jesus was changing the entire ball game. He was reorienting everything about life and God and behavior and decisions. Words that were supposed to command our words and our intentions and our actions, our desires, our behaviors. And yet when, we're, when we hear them, we're tempted to go, yeah, yeah, I got that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard that. In fact, I've heard that a million times. And yet in those moments when Jesus spoke these words in his final hours before arrest and prosecution that wasn't legit and ultimately death, he spoke these words to men that by all accounts turned the world upside down. And what he says to them explains what we cling to when our life is a mess. That's how big a deal they are. Like when your life is out of control and crap hits the fan and it's dysfunctional and you've created the mess and there's bad decisions and they're so bad, you know what I'm talking about? You start to question, where do I stand with God? Like, am I okay with God? Are we good? Because this is so bad and I have made a train wreck of this to such a degree that I feel insecure even about my relationship with God. When you get into that place, the words that Jesus spoke are born out in what we cling to, which is Jesus came and lived a perfect life died the death we should have died past, present, and future, and then historically walked out of a grave alive. And when we place our faith and our trust in him, it is the thing that we lean on in those darkest moments when we've created our own mess, our own dysfunction, our own sin. And what Jesus spoke in these final hours are an illustration of those words, the thing that we cling to, and it's a reminder that at the epicenter of all of this, the epicenter of following Jesus are these words that Jesus spoke to his disciples in those final moments that we so easily move aside. What's interesting, if you look at the writings of Paul, Paul never got past this. He, it never got old to him. He, there was never a point in his ministry where Paul was not consumed with how profound and how powerful all of it was. In fact, he's the guy that wrote to Christians in Galatia, hey, if you guys, like, if you get distracted by life and raising kids and whatever, just know the only thing that counts is this thing, the words that Jesus spoke. He writes to a church in Corinth that were going through all kinds of stuff. And he's like, hey, just so you guys know, go to the temple, memorize the Torah, get in a community group, like, do, sing your songs, do the deal that all Christians do. All that's amazing. I'm happy for you. But just so you know, if you miss this one thing, none of those other things matter. None of it makes any difference if you don't have this. And then people were like, well, well, Paul, we need something deeper. And Paul's like, the only reason that you want something deeper is because you've never watched a grown man die the excruciating death of Roman crucifixion. You've never heard the screams of somebody who's had the flesh ripped off their back by Roman flogging. You want deeper because you've never looked into the eyes of a dying man who's suffocating to death. You want deeper because you didn't grow up, Paul would say, like I did, watching rotting bodies on Roman crosses. You didn't smell the smells. You haven't heard the sounds. You haven't watched it with your eyes. It is as deep and profound as it gets. And there is nothing with more potential to change everything than the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples the night of his arrest. Words 
that represented a complete paradigm shift that ultimately did bring Rome to its knees in ways they never could have imagined. And they changed the world. Words that are kind of the fuel and the context for this final question. Here's what Jesus said that has become so familiar. We've become so inoculated to it that I don't think it informs us the way that it was meant to. When Jesus said, hey guys, a new, in the Greek, kanos, unused, unrealistic, remarkable. A new command I give you. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. we got plenty already, thank you. We got like 613 of these things. Uh, I'm sure you've been tracking with this, Jesus. We can't keep half of them. We don't even remember most of them. Like, I gotta go back to my sheet. What are they again? Like, we do not need another command. And here's what's so significant in this moment. Jesus wasn't giving them another command. He was replacing all of the previous commands. He was introducing something that we're still trying to catch up with 2,000 years later, something brand new. This is why this doesn't hit you the way that it should because inadvertently some of you were taught wrong that this was, these words were in addition to. They weren't. They were replacement of. Everything else before was meaningful. It was inspired. It was the cocoon to birth the movement that would be centered around Jesus. But now the new had arrived that would replace everything else. And in this moment, Jesus said, a new command I give you. I want you to love one another. And they're like, well, that's not new, but Jesus wasn't through. No, I want you to love one another. And by the way, and he, he uses a, a very inter interesting terms where he was making clear to them, I don't want you to feel something. This is why Jesus was able to say, I want you to love your enemies. And Jesus isn't a liar. The reason he was able to say that because he defines love different than us. I want you to do it and do it precedes feel it. A new command I give you, I want you to love one another. And little did they know as he's sitting at that table, guys, I know that doesn't feel like enough and I know you don't have any money. And if I peace out, you're wondering what in the world you're gonna do. I'm just telling you, it's enough. You're gonna change the world with these words. A new command I give you, love one another. And then this is what elevates it. This is what makes it different. This is what we still move on by. This is the thing that does not inform our churches the way that it should. As I have loved you, so you, what's the word? Must love one another. And in this moment as Jesus is sitting there, he establishes himself as the bar and the standard to measure all behavior and all decisions. Not you, not your internal conscience, not your friends, not your grandfather, not the theology you grew up with, Jesus. I want you to love other people the way I've loved you. And to the, it's hard to overestimate this. To the guys who are at the table, this is so personal to them. I mean, he could have said to Matthew, hey, Matthew, you remember that day when I, I rolled up on you? And you, and I, again, you guys, I think, missed this too. I mean, contextually, Matthew was as outside as you could get. People hated him. People despised him. He was marginalized. He was a traitor. He was a tax collector. I mean, Jesus come up, he's trying to hide the bong, and he's like, what do you want me to do? And that was probably too far. But like, uh, when I'm trying to get, Matthew was way on the outside, and Jesus comes and goes, Matthew, I want you to follow me. And Matthew, do you remember what happened? There were a bunch of religious people who stopped following because they didn't like you and didn't want to be with you. And I invited you anyway. Matthew, I want you to go love other people like that. Hey, Nat, Nathaniel, Nathaniel, eye contact. Remember that day when I met you and you dissed my entire hometown, entire family of origin? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
And I invited you to follow anyway, didn't I? I want you to love people like that. Remember that day I gave the weird sermon on eat my flesh, drink my blood, and all of you guys wanted to leave me? And I didn't leave you? I want you to love like that. I'm the standard. I'm the benchmark. I mean, what about you? I mean, like they, I, for some of us, it's a journey. For some of us, it's kind of a moment. But those moments and part of that journey where you're like, I'm all in, I'm following Jesus. I, and there's been so much dysfunction since that time. And he still heard your prayers. And he still forgave you and me for the same stupid stuff over and over again. And he keeps intervening despite the fact that you keep stiff arming, going, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. Jesus is like, hey, whatever it is for you, however personal it is for you, I want you to love like that. And then Jesus could have said, and by the way, guys, in a few hours, I'm going to put on a demonstration of this, how this looks, that will take your breath away. Because it'll take my breath away. And if you lean into me, it could take your sin away. And then these next words, I'm telling you, if we just got these, it would change everything. By this, by this one thing, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you do what? If you love one another. Demonstrative pronoun, which means it points to something specific. In this moment, Jesus is going, this is the divining characteristic for my followers. Nothing else. This is a divining characteristic for my movement. This is the governing ethic for all behavior and all decisions from this point forward. And what's interesting is it, this stood in stark contract to all, contrast to all the ways that they had been thinking. And 2,000 years later, I think it stands in stark contrast to the way most of us think. Like here was Jesus' point in this moment that following Jesus is illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by your love for other people, period. Following Jesus is illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by your love for other people. Basically, many of us grew up with like vertical Jesus. What do I need to do with God? Is God pleased with me? What do I need to do with God? Is God pleased with me? What do I need to do with God? Is God pleased with me? In this moment, Jesus shifts everything that I'm telling you, we're still trying to figure out and we wanna move back into the Old Testament, Old Covenant system and it's not that way anymore. Now, if you wanna know where you're at in vertical relationship with God, all you need to do is look to your right and left and it'll tell you everything about the nature of your following Jesus. He's going, listen, sing me songs, give me money, get in a group, attend every week. All that's amazing. But that's about you. I'm good. Now I've invited you into something bigger. It's not about how you treat God in vertical relationship. If you want to know how you're treating God, look at how you're treating his sons and his daughters. It'll tell you everything you need to know. And this is why church cultures can move to a place where everybody has fat Bibles and they know a ton of theology and they never miss a Sunday and they look amazing and their stick figures bowing down to a cross on the back of their minivan and everybody seems like they've got it all together. They've never cussed in their life and they've got a vertical relationship with God that sounds amazing and simultaneously they can treat people like crap and not feel anything in return and in this moment Jesus is going it's over 
That is a subtle form of self-centered religion that allows you to put God in the box and make a checklist of seven things and then treat people however you want. And in this moment, Jesus is removing all of the loopholes, all of the just justification, all of the workarounds to go. Now there's no place to hide. In the Old Testament, Old Covenant movement, there was a place to hide. Just bring your bull, go do your thing, go your way, you're fine. Not, in fact, Jesus said this, if you come to the temple and you've got your goat ready to sacrifice and you find that you sinned against somebody, leave it at the altar and go get it right first. Your sacrifice can wait. Now the vertical is born out in the horizontal. And I'm telling you, when you understand that, and some of you have heard me talk about this a lot, it brings the entire New Testament to life. You'll suddenly begin to know how to interpret and filter all of it when John says, my command is this, quoting Jesus, love each other as I've loved you, Go. Galatians 5, 6, complete the verse I looked at earlier. The only thing that counts, this is Paul writing this, the only thing that counts. And you're like, Paul, whoa, whoa, you sure, man? There's a lot of stuff, a lot of things we should do, a lot of things we should pay attention to. I mean, the only, and Paul's like, shh, shut up. I wrote the verse. The only thing that counts is your faith expressing itself in love. If you don't do that, you're not following Jesus. And that finally brings us to our last question, or our fourth question. And I'm, I'm just, I can't, I, I wish I could do better at articulating the weight of this. This question represents a brand new way of thinking around relational decision making. This is the thing that paves the way forward for relational health. This is the thing that has the potential to guard your conscience. Th this is the question that has the ability to give extraordinary clarity in moments where you just feel like it's so complicated and you don't know what to do? Like, th this is the question that was ultimately supposed to guide every part of your life, how you date, who you are as a spouse, who you are as a boss, what kind of coworker you are, how you treat your neighbors. It was supposed to inform how you manage, how you coach, how you decision make, what you do in quiet moments, what you prioritize. This was be, to be the filter and the thing that drives everything. And somehow we've lost sight of it. The, the fourth question I, I wanna just unpack for you that you've heard me talk about before is just this. On the edge of a decision, it's a business transaction that's ultimately gonna have relational consequences. It's what are we gonna do? What are we gonna prioritize? Where are we gonna go? Are we gonna accept this? Are we gonna compromise this? On the verge of that decision, the question is, what does love demand of me? What does love demand of me? This is the question that gives voice to God's will when the Bible seemingly is silent. And here, if you're not a Christian, you, you can just look, I, I say this all the time, poke fun of us and call us hypocrites for a second, because I'm going to speak to those who've begun to follow Jesus. We are amazing at getting our hearts and our emotions wrapped around the decision we want and then bringing God in to kind of for his stamp of approval. I talked about this last week. So like, so we kind of just play the God card because what we'll do is if there's any lack of clarity, we'll go looking for loopholes and workarounds and justification. And I'm telling you, this question crushes many, most of our justification for decisions that are really bad that we wanna get God on board with. Like here's how Jesus followers will do it. We'll get to an edge of a decision and then we'll say things like this. But the Bible doesn't say there's anything wrong with fill in the blank. But the Bible doesn't say there's anything wrong with it. I, don't, I can't find a verse. There's no theology. And Jesus is changing all of this because now, even if you lost your Bible and you couldn't find one and there's no version app to download anymore, 
If you know that there's a Jesus who lived a perfect life and died the death for you and walked out of a grave alive, you got all you need if you have this singular command, love other people the way that I've loved you. Go, even if you can't find a verse. In fact, in one part of the New Testament, it talks about the fact that when you place your faith and trust in Christ, the law of Christ is written on our hearts. Meaning when you ask this question, it is extraordinarily terrifying because you almost always know the answer to the question. Let me me illustrate it this way real quick. It should be a paradigm shift for us to where we don't need a verse for everything anymore. You don't need to try to find justification. You don't need to, how do I I move to the lowest common denominator? No, no, no. What does love demand of me? It changes how we view things. It changes how we interpret the New Testament. It changes our filter and motivation. Like, let me put it this way. Do you know why we should tell the truth? Oh, easy one, easy one. Grew up in church. Because we take the text seriously and the Bible, inspired word of God, and so there's a verse around that, tell the truth. No, no. You're like, no, I'm pretty sure that's the right. No, it's not the right answer. It's great if you have a verse, and, and that, but that only motivates you so far. Jesus' intent was to give us examples and illustrations throughout the New Testament about what this looks like, but it was not an exhaustive list. Here's the reason that we should tell the truth, because when you lie to somebody, you hurt them. And love demands that you don't hurt somebody else who's made in the image of God. You don't lie to somebody else because you cover yourself at the expense of them and you communicate to them, maybe non-verbally, that you are not worthy of the truth. And what's best for me is secondary to you. No, 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 I tell the truth because I want God to love me. No. Brand new covenant, brand new movement, brand new ethic. You tell the truth because you love other people around you. And now following Jesus is loving your neighbor as yourself. You don't even need a verse. It's all the motivation you need. You know why you should be generous? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's an easy one. I'm pretty sure there's tons of, I can't find them anywhere, but I know there's verses about be generous. I'm sure Jesus talked, no. You know why you should be generous? It's super deep, write it down. Because when you are generous, it helps the person that you are generous to. And when you don't, you rob them, and that's what love demands of you. You know why you shouldn't talk badly about somebody? Oh, again, I think in Proverbs, there's, no. You don't talk badly about somebody because new motivation, new filter. You only need this one question. When you talk badly, it hurts somebody else around you and it undermines their integrity. And when you talk badly or gossip, you elevate yourself at the expense of another person. And you shouldn't do that even if it's not in the B-I-B-L-E. That's what love demands of you because you can't be stingy and be a gossip and lie And love your neighbor as yourself. Let me give you just one more for the heck of it. You know why you shouldn't pressure someone sexually? Oh, that's easy. Pretty sure God hates sex. At least that's what they told me in Sunday school. Again, there's verses around that. Give me a minute. I'll find some of them. But I'm, no. God created sex, created you as beings that that were designed for pleasure. You know why you shouldn't? It's a completely different filter, completely different motivation than what many of you grew up with. This is how the new covenant command affects every area of your life. You shouldn't pressure somebody with anything because when you pressure somebody to do what they don't want to do, you create regret for them. And when somebody tells the story of their greatest regret in a counseling session, another Jesus follower's name shouldn't come up. 
You know why you shouldn't pressure somebody sexually? Because you shouldn't do, this is a different way of looking at it, you shouldn't do anything that would undermine your sexual experience or somebody else's because God loves sex, God created it, God wants the best for you, and the only thing you need in situations you don't understand and can't bind a verse is what does love demand of me? Yeah, yeah, but what about, do you need a verse for everything? Jesus is going, no, 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 I've set up a brand new way to filter and to look at and to make decisions. I want you to follow my example, and I want you to love other people the way that I have loved you. What does love demand of me? When you are unsure of what to say or do, ask what does love demand of you? When it's foggy, when it's unclear, when it's layered, and they told you, and I grew up with, when you are unsure of what to say or do, what does love demand of you? Here's the thing that I can't emphasize enough, and I'll come back and do a whole series on this again. The New Testament, this is how you interpret it, the New Testament are simply imperatives or examples of how you demonstrate your love for God by loving other people. It's not even an exhaustive list. It's like, here you go, here's some letters, get you started. But if you're making decisions where you're looking for loopholes and workarounds and they're adverse, then you've missed the entire point. Because there's gonna be tons of moments and scenarios you can't find a verse And you can justify it because of the theology you were taught growing up. And they said, and your three friends are on board with you. And by the way, and everybody. And then what Jesus said in those moments in the upper room cuts through it all. No, no, no. That's not the standard. What does love demand of you? What does it look like to make this decision and to love other people the way that I have loved you? And do you know how far Jesus took this? He said, all of the law and prophets... Every bit, the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I get, I get the pushback. Yeah, yeah, but this is, this is like watering it down. It's not taking the text seriously. It's, you know, it's cheap grace. It's, it's like Woodstock for Christians. Just love everybody. I don't know what my problem is. Um, <laughs> and my answer to that question is, are you kidding me? Are you kidding? I'll admit The Jesus movement and the Jesus way is far less complicated because for some of you, you grew up jumping through a million hoops. What's the standard today? And it was different depending on denomination. I'll I'll give it to you. It's far less complicated. I'll also tell you it is far more demanding. The moment you think this is watering it down or cheap grace, remember that your savior died covered in blood in other men's saliva. That's how far this goes. That's what this demands. That's how profound ultimately it is. I think Paul gives us the clearest application. And again, we've heard this so many times for some of it's become cliche. It doesn't even land. It's so familiar to us. When Paul said this, I don't want you to just feel something. I want you to do something. I want you to love the way that God has loved you in Christ. And he says, love is patient. Meaning if you want to know what this New Testament covenant ethic looks like in terms of everyday life, I want you to give other people more time than you want to give them. Love is kind, meaning it automatically diverts to somebody else. It doesn't envy. It's not jealous. It's not proud. It's not trying to one-up somebody. It doesn't dishonor, which means it doesn't create unnecessary regret for somebody else. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. This is kind of a right hook to some of us. It keeps no record of wrongs because you have like a filing cabinet from seven years ago where you're looking at stuff. Doesn't keep record. 
It doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. So it elevates what is good rather than always seeing what's bad. It always protects, meaning it does everything it can not to smuggle harmful things from your past into the relationship. It protects it. And then this is such a ridiculous standard. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. But isn't it true that that's actually the thing that you're looking for in the relationships that are closest to you? That as unrealistic almost as as it is, it is the internal standard of what we expect from other people. It's why the invitation of Jesus, the Jesus movement, those words spoken to his disciple in their final hours, I'm telling you, it is spectacular. But it's terrifying. Because unlike what many of us grew up with, with this, this just levels the playing field. And we can't get away with checking a few things off the box and thinking God's cool and then treat people the way that we want to. All the workarounds, all the justifications, all the loopholes go away. When you start to decide on the front end, what does love demand of me? And when you're tempted to think that this is somehow less profound or watered down, remember that when your heavenly father asked this question, it cost him his son. And when you think this question is weak, just remember that when his son asked this question, it cost him his life. That's how far this goes. That's what this kind of love demands. For you, It might demand that you walk into a kitchen or walk into a bedroom and you've tried every way to keep from doing this and you've asked friends and there's so much that's been done that you could easily justify it and you've got a couple people in your corner and so you've been cool with that and it's kind of quieted your conscience but the moment you start to ask not what did they think or what did they justify or what my grandpa taught but what does love demand of me? Love demands that you walk into the kitchen or the bedroom and you apologize. Or you're on the verge of an extraordinary opportunity. I mean, like, this is career trajectory. This is what I wanted. This is what I've been working toward. This is amazing. This is everything I hope for at this season of my life. And it is an incredible opportunity for you. And it's not an incredible opportunity for them. And you know what love demands of you. And that's terrifying. For some of you, you need to make a phone call. And there has been so many layers in this relationship and you've been treated so badly. And I'm not being sarcastic when I say this, you're right. Like it's a situation where you're right. You have every right by everybody else's account to just stay away, draw a boundary, don't ever communicate again. But you know, because being right was not what love demanded in that scenario. And you gotta make a call. For others of you, you gotta send a text and they are off the rails and you don't know if they'll even text you back and there's so much animosity. And they might not. But probably for you, there was one point along the journey where you were stiff arming your savior who kept pursuing and coming after you and you didn't want anything to do with it. And yet he kept coming anyway. He never left you, he never forsake you. And he's asking you to do the same thing for them, even if they never reciprocate and never move in your direction. It is what love demands of you. And here's the thing, man, that I get how uncomfortable this is because I've I've said this before, I don't always know what to believe. And I've studied a lot of theology for a lot of years. I don't always know. And I don't always know what to think. And there are some decisions that are layered and complicated. Here's what I'll tell you from experience. I almost always 
know the answer to what does love demand of me. And according to Jesus, that's enough. So if you're on the verge of, middle of, contemplating, that big decision, so much emotion, there's so much going on in your heart and your mind, are you being honest with yourself? Really? Have you been honest about the reasons why you're making that decision or why you're thinking about that? And I get that there's a lot involved, but eventually this is gonna be a story that you tell. And so when it's nothing left but a story that you tell, what story do you wanna tell? What story do you wanna be able to articulate without leaving any parts out, without skipping anything? You're on the verge of a decision. There's something that tells you, I just don't know. I can't even point to what it is and I don't have a verse. And I, but there's just a tension. There's just a hesitation. Are you paying attention? to the tension? Is there a tension that deserves your attention before you move in a direction that you might regret? And then what does love demand of you? And then I just want to end this with this and I'll be done because I don't want you to forget this. I want to remind you one more time. In large part, your life and the quality and the direction of your life is determined by the decisions that you make. The decisions you make determine the story of your life write a good story. But here's where I just want to encourage you one final time. Please do not. Please do not allow the enemy who has been a liar from the very beginning to use your past to sabotage your future and to get you to believe that the bad decisions that you've made and the guilt that you carry is the story of your life rather than just a chapter. As I've said before, your story does not have to be over. And the evidence for that is because you serve a God that defeated death, hell, and the grave. So no matter how dead the relationship feels, a God that conquers death can overcome that. No matter how much hell you've walked through, God can repurpose and rearrange anything. No matter how bad it's been, no matter how much you've sabotaged you, you serve a God that commanded nature and nature obeyed, who talked to dead people and they respond, who gave sight to the blind, who invited people who were sinners, tax collectors, pimps, prostitutes, zealots, and said, I want you to follow me and I know your path and I know the story you've written up into this point, but I'm a God of resurrection. I bring things to life. And the moment you will lean in my direction and say from now on, despite what's in the rear view mirror, I'm following you, Jesus. I'm taking my cue from you. What does love demand of me? A God who defeated death can begin to redeem and can begin to restore and repurpose anything from your past and elevate it to a place where for your good and his glory, he can write a better story in the future. It is the narrative of the scripture. In this moment, you need to shut up the enemy to go, I'm not gonna believe those lies. I'm not gonna believe that this decision is a story. It's a chapter and I'm leaning into a God of resurrection to write a better story for my future. Do not give into that lie. Your decisions write a story and it's up to you. Write a good story. You serve a God who can handle all of the rest. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, 
Would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.